0: Welcome to Sermons from Iceland, a podcast that highlights the most recent sermons from Lufstofan Baptista Kyrka, a Bible-based church in the Reykjavik Iceland area. Pastor Gunnar Inge Gunnarsson and the ministry staff at Love are grateful that you are joining us for today's study in God's Word as a supplement to your weekly routine of meeting with your local church to worship Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. The following was recorded on Sunday, September 10, 2023. Today's message title, Christianity 101, Who is Jesus? a study
1: from the book of John. So good morning, Lo Stefan. It's a joy, it's always a joy, always a joy to come here um, and, and see this gathering, to be part of this gathering um, and to uh, stand before you and open the word of God. Back in the States, I always speak about your church with great joy because I not only believe that you are a true representation of a first century church, but I also believe that you are a picture of the gathering of believers from every tribe and every nation in the end times. If you look around this room, I think we have every continent represented in this room, except Antarctica and Australia there any Aussies here? Yeah, that's, that's why I said he's, he, he would punch that ticket, but he's not here today. Um, so what I love about coming here is in your, in your body, to, as, as Paul said, there's neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek, rich nor poor, Icelander nor foreigner. You are truly united in and through Christ. And you may not realize what a gift you have here. Trust me, you have a tremendous gift here. And um, it's just a blessing to be here. The letter of Jude is one of my favorite books of the Bible. You don't need to turn there. Uh, We're actually going to be in the gospel of John this morning. But Jude is a short letter. If you go to Revelation and turn left, you'll run into it. And it's often overlooked or forgotten, which is too bad because it's one of the most relevant letters to the church in our day and age. Most of the letter is devoted to warning us about the greatest threat to the church. It's not Satan. It's not the culture. It's the dangers of false teachers and false doctrines inside of the church. But Jude wasn't some version of a YouTube heresy hunter. The purpose of Jude's letter is found in his exhortation at the end of the letter, that the followers of Christ in the church may be warned to keep ourselves in our most holy faith. Last week, Gunnar talked about faith being the fact that we place our hope and our assurance in truth. And a most holy faith is one that is protected from the world and from false teaching. So we are to keep ourselves in the truth, but for a purpose. We are to keep ourselves in the truth so that we may have mercy on those who doubt and save others by snatching them from the fire. Verses 22 and 23. The word doubt does not appear often in our English translation of the Bible. I wasn't even going to try the Greek pronunciation of the word. But when it does, it has a certain weight to it. Doubt can be described various ways. Unbelief, lack of faith, wavering, uncertainty. But in the end, doubt regarding the things of God Is sin. Notice, I'm not saying that all doubt is sin. Doubting the government, having skepticism about what we read or hear in the news, these are all good forms of doubt. But doubt when it comes to God is sin. And all we need to do is go back to the Garden of Eden and see that it is what caused the fall. Satan said, Did God really say you would die? Eve doubted and ate. But if we're honest with ourselves, we all experience doubt. Is God really there in my troubles? Did God really mean that sex outside of marriage is sin? Did God really part the Red Sea for the Israelites? Surely God didn't mean that homosexuality is a sin in the 21st century. Did Jesus really die and rise again? Are all my sins truly forgiven? I don't care how mature you are in your faith. We all experience moments of doubt, but we cannot stay in moments of unbelief or they will lead to disbelief a hardening of our heart against the truth of God. Instead, we should repent of our doubts and pray as the father of the sick child did in Mark chapter nine, saying, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. One of the largest sources of doubt in the Christian faith is the identity of Jesus. There's nothing more Christianity 101 than who is Jesus. And if we have doubts about the identity of Jesus, then as Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 5, 19, we are are of all people most to be pitied if we doubt that. So this morning, I hope to solidify your belief in who Jesus is. For those who are thinking, well, I'm confident, I know who Jesus is. Don't be too quick to dismiss the need to hear this. We are no different from the Israelites who shortly after being led through the red sea on dry land, forgot about the goodness, mercy and provision of Yahweh and worshiped a golden cow. We are forgetful people and need constant reminders of the gospel and of the identity of Jesus. So as you're able Uh, We in here at Los Fan and I love this. I wish we'd do this in more churches. Please stand for the reading of God's word. We will be in, I'm sorry, John chapter five, verses 31 to 47. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me The very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. From the only God. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Please be seated. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we examine your word this morning, as we seek to understand, please teach us what we do not know. Help us to see what we cannot see. Help us hear where our eyes are, our ears are closed. And Lord, most of all, I ask that the words that you've given me to share that they would sink deeply into our hearts and that they would change us in some way that we may become more like Christ. It's his name we pray, amen. So this can be a fairly complicated passage of scripture. And if you're just reading through the gospel of John, you may have a tendency to skip over it. If you have a red letter Bible, all these letters that I just read are red. And in the ESV translation, it's one big long paragraph. And so it'd be very easy to wanna just skip over it, but they are the inspired words written by the apostle John. So they must be important. And it's our responsibility to understand what they mean to us. The first piece of context for this passage is the purpose of John's gospel. Why did John write these words? And we find that in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, where John wrote, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. John had one purpose in writing his gospel, that you might know who Jesus is and that through him you may have eternal life. That is the essence of the title this morning, Who is Jesus? Everything John wrote in his gospel is pointing us to be able to answer that question correctly. So while the passage may be challenging, it is meant to help us know who Jesus is. John recorded seven signs in his gospel about at that, that point to the identity of Jesus. And in chapter five, where we find ourselves this morning, he opens with the healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda. Jesus healed this man who could not walk. And then Jesus told the man to pick up his mat and carry it. This was a violation of the Jewish law because it was on the Sabbath and picking up your mat was work and you were not supposed to do that on the Sabbath. And this may be a minor violation, but the Jewish leaders knew about this Jesus guy and his disciples and how they had been repeatedly violating Sabbath laws but where Jesus crossed the line was in verse 17 of chapter five, when Jesus equated himself with God, the father, this was now blasphemy. This was punishable by death. And Jesus didn't back down, but he went on in verses 19 through 30 to make some astonishing statements about himself. First, He reemphasizes his oneness with the Father, saying they are of one will, one mind, and one purpose. This is the essence of two-thirds of the Trinity, that the Father and the Son are one, but in different persons. The Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Father, but the Son does nothing different from or outside of the Father. Second, Jesus says that he will give life to the dead. Much more could be said about this, but this is something that only God can do, resurrect the dead. Finally, Jesus says that he will judge all mankind. Again, more could be said about this, but this is a power or a, a character that only God can have. So in the verses leading up to today's passage, Jesus has told the Jewish leaders that he is the son of God. And now Jesus finds himself in a courtroom. He's facing the death penalty for blasphemy. The text we just read is Jesus' defense. He calls three witnesses to defend himself, to prove his identity. Today, you get to be the judge to decide if Jesus is innocent or guilty of the charge of claiming to be God. But here's the twist. You, not Jesus, will serve the sentence based on your verdict. If you determine that he is guilty as charged, that he is the son of God, then you will have an opportunity for eternal life with him. If you determine that Jesus is innocent of the charge, that he is not the son of God, then you, not he, will face death. Each of you must decide, who is Jesus? So let's hear from Jesus as he calls his witnesses. First, as he opens his defense in verse 31, He acknowledges a legal practice in the Bible. Jesus tells the Jewish leaders that he cannot take the stand on his own behalf. His personal testimony cannot be valid. Now, certainly if Jesus was the son of God, if he has the power and authority of God, he could change the rules. But Jesus appeals to the standard laid down by Moses as given to him by his father, a standard that was recognized by the Pharisees who had him on trial. Jesus was willing to play by their rules, the rules his father gave in the law of Moses. See, in Jewish culture, it was well known that truth must be verified by two or three other witnesses. So rather than speaking on his own behalf, rather rather than using the word of truth from the mouth of the one who had been given authority to judge all mankind, Jesus deferred to the legal rules of the time and called witnesses. The first witness he calls to the stand in verse 32 is his cousin, John the Baptist. Now in verse 33, Jesus reminds the Jewish leaders that they sent investigators to John and John has already given them a witness statement So let's examine John the Baptist as a witness. Is he credible? Is he authoritative? We know in Luke chapter one, the angel Gabriel announced John's coming as a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies in Malachi and Isaiah. After his birth, Zechariah, his dad, was filled with the Holy Spirit and announced that John would be a prophet of the Most High. And each gospel writer identifies John as the one described in Isaiah 40 as a voice crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. There isn't any doubt that John the Baptist is a reliable and trustworthy witness sent on behalf of God. So now we must ask, what is his testimony? In the gospel of John, Chapter one, verse 29, John the Baptist picks Jesus out of the crowd. I can I can see him pointing in the crowd and says, here is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And in verse 32, John gives his witness statement. I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him but he who sent me to baptize with water water said to me he on whom you see the spirit descend and remain this is who, he who baptizes with the holy spirit and i have seen and have borne witness that this is the son of god in those two statements john gives us who jesus is the son of god what jesus is God's pure lamb sacrifice and why Jesus came to take away the sin of the world. By saying that Jesus will baptize with the Holy Spirit, John is pointing the Pharisees to Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 26 and 27, where Ezekiel said, well, God said through Ezekiel, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is the baptism of the Holy Spirit that we each receive when we are born again. This baptism isn't a spiritual manifestation where you suddenly start speaking in tongues, as some Christians believe, this baptism of the Holy Spirit is actually heart transplant surgery. Where Jesus takes our heart of sin and stone and gives us a heart of flesh softened by God's grace and mercy. A heart which desires nothing more than to obey and worship God. Our heart transplant by Jesus is the fulfillment of the covenant as foretold by Ezekiel and announced by John the Baptist. before Before Jesus asks John to step down from the witness stand, in verse 34, he makes sure we have a clear understanding about this witness. Even though John was considered a rock star, prophet, and preacher, And even though Jesus regarded him highly among men, John represents the lowest form of witness on Jesus' behalf, human witness. Jesus makes sure that we understand that he doesn't accept human testimony. And that should humble any ideas of greatness we have about our evangelism even though we are commanded to spread the gospel of Jesus as John the Baptist did, and even though the Holy Spirit absolutely uses us to share the light of the kingdom and the truth of the gospel, human witness is the least witness that Jesus calls in his defense. So what does Jesus consider a greater testimony? Jesus calls his second witness in verse 36 the work that he is doing on his father's behalf. These are the signs and wonders Jesus had been doing all over the countryside, healing the sick, making the lame walk, opening the eyes of the blind, making the mute speak and the deaf hear. These signs are the core of John's gospel through chapters two through 12 and the foundation of John's purpose in writing his gospel. These signs and wonders testify about the identity of Jesus because the prophets of old told us that the Messiah would do these things. God the Father, speaking through Isaiah in chapter 29, verse 18, said that he will make the deaf hear and the blind see. A few chapters later, Isaiah, in Isaiah, God the Father says that the lame will leap like deer the mute will sing for joy in addition to the blind and the deaf being healed. By Jesus now doing these things, he is identified as one with the Father. And the signs and wonders point to his divine identity and authority. And it wasn't just the Old Testament prophets that recognized this. In John chapter three, Nicodemus the teacher of teachers of the Pharisees, when he meets Jesus in their secret meeting, says to Jesus, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. The miracles of Jesus had not been seen among the people of God since the days of Elijah And they spoke of the significance of the identity of Jesus. You may have heard the phrase, actions speak louder than words. Well, that's who Jesus calls as his second witness, his actions. The works he is doing point to his identity as the son of God based upon the prophecies that had been given about the Messiah. And I feel I need to do a little sidebar here. In the spirit of Jude warning about false teaching, because there are many false teachers out there today who are telling you that you too can do these miracles of Jesus if you just have enough faith. Bethel Church in the United States is chief among them. They teach a different Jesus, one who did these miracles as a man, not as the Son of God. And therefore, you too should expect to do them and have that supernatural power, the same supernatural power as Jesus. But this is an old heresy that's been taught for centuries. But Bethel has made it more appealing through marketing and catchy music. But by calling his signs and wonders as a witness of his divinity, Jesus destroys this heresy that we ought to be doing these same healings. I'm not saying that healings and miracles are not possible. James in chapter five, verses 14 and 15 tells us, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. James shows us that healings are possible, but the power by which they happen are of God, not man. The father acts in response to the prayer of the faithful, not a power that we should expect. It's his will that should be done, not ours. And James shows us that physical healing really isn't the miracle that we should be looking for. The prayer of faith saves the sick person. The real miracle is a person's salvation, not their physical healing. The Greek word used here for save refers to the eternal salvation of a soul, not their physical healing. And we know this by the end of verse 15, because James speaks of receiving the forgiveness of sins. Bethel Church and the many ministries and false teachers like them teach an emphasis on our physical, emotional, mental, and material well-being here on earth. But the Bible teaches an emphasis on our right standing before God. Reject and avoid any teaching that doesn't point first and foremost to your salvation and justification before God. And with that, Jesus moves on to his third and final witness. He started with John the Baptist, moved on to his signs and wonders, and now calls the witness he honors the most. This is Jesus' expert witness. He calls his father to the stand. There are a number of ways that Jesus could ask his father to testify. He could ask his father to tell the story about the time at Jesus' baptism where the father said, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. But Jesus doesn't mention that story. Jesus could ask his father about the testimony that the father places in the heart of every man. 1 John 5, 9 and 10 says, if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater for this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his son. Whoever believes in the son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has born concerning his son. God has placed the truth about his son in the heart of every man. However, not everyone accepts this truth. This is normal. People reject plain truth all the time. Some deny that the earth is a sphere. Many believe that it is a choice, not a life in a mother's womb. Some deny that humans are created either male or female. So it should be no surprise that many deny that Jesus is the son of God. The identity of Jesus is embedded in our hearts, pre-wired in us, but many choose not to believe it. I believe that some consider the evidence and just find the evidence not credible. But often I think the choice to reject the testimony of God is more an act of apathy than of conscious decision. Most people just don't think about Jesus in the course of their lives pursuing the pleasures and prosperity of the here and now rather than considering the weight of eternity. So Jesus does not ask his father about the testimony we have all received because those who reject God's testimony in their heart have already made God the father out to be a liar. Instead, Jesus uses, his, uses the written testimony of his father as his primary witness. Take a look at verse 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. <clears throat> Jesus knew that the Pharisees loved the law and the prophets. In fact, it might be said that Jesus is pointing out their idolatry of the scriptures here. Jesus acknowledges that they search the scriptures. They pore over them thinking that by knowing them, they will earn eternal life. But the Pharisees missed the point entirely about the scriptures. The Jews saw them as the written words of Moses and the words of the other prophets. They did not see them as the words of God the Father. And we see this in verses 37 and 38, as Jesus tells them, they've never heard from the Father and his words do not lie inside of them. Rather than finding eternal life in the scriptures, the Jews will face condemnation by the scriptures, as we see in verse 45, because their hearts were blind to the truth of the scriptures. The purpose of the scriptures is given by Jesus in verse 39. They bear witness of Jesus. This lines up with the sermon Jesus gave on the road to Emmaus. How many of us would have loved to have been there to hear that message from Jesus where he showed the two disciples walking along the road how all the scriptures point to Jesus. In fact, if people try to tell you that Christianity is the same as all other religions, this is a great way to show them that it is Unique. One of my mentors taught me a few years ago that in every religion out there, there is a messenger, a person who points to the message that is written in their holy writings. Muhammad brought the Quran. Moses brought the Torah. Buddha brought the Vedas. Joseph Smith brought the Book of Mormon. And I could go on and on. Each of these writings, the message, tell you how to work your way back to God through rules and performance. But Jesus tells us here in verse 39 that he is the message and the scriptures are the messenger. The gospel of Jesus is different from every other religion. The Bible is the messenger and Jesus is the message. While every other religion claims their message is the way to God, Jesus is the only way to God. Jesus' expert witness is the Bible. In the Father's word, we have access to all the knowledge of truth that is needed to understand that Jesus Christ is the son of God and that through him we can have reconciliation with life and eternal life with the father. Jesus rests his case on the strength and credibility of the Bible. Now, as we move from Jesus' defense to what it means to us, let me read to you the words of C.S. Lewis from Mere Christianity. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. We must each decide if Jesus says who he says he is. For anyone who is undecided, let me say that indecision is a decision, a decision to not believe. But know this, you will be held responsible on the day of judgment for the truth that has been presented to you. I believe in speaking very clearly and I want to make sure the gospel of Jesus Christ is is clear to everyone listening this morning. In the beginning, God created mankind in his image to be in perfect communion with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But we have rebelled. We have violated God's moral law, each one of us. We have rejected God's goodness and authority in our hearts. And we have sought to seat ourselves on our own throne. This rebellion is sin. And our sin has cast us out of God's presence and we have received a judgment of eternal death. But God, who is rich in mercy because of the great love he has for us, did not immediately wipe us off the face of the earth when we've committed our first transgression. He could have. Instead, he is patient desiring that no one would perish. But the truth is, we cannot save ourselves. Our sin is so deep, so wide, and so tall that we cannot ever pay the penalty for our sin and rebellion against God. It would seem to be a hopeless situation if not for the fact that God so loved the world that he sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to live the perfect life that we cannot live, to die the horrible death that we deserve, Jesus sacrificed himself on the cross to pay for every one of your sins and mine. But that's not the end of the story. Jesus stopped being dead. He conquered death and defeated sin through his resurrection so that if you believe you cannot earn your way to heaven, but that Jesus' death and resurrection are your only hope, if you believe that and place your faith in that truth, you will be saved. Now, the gospel's been presented and you will be held accountable. You can take one of three paths. You can refuse this gift of God's grace because you fear men more than you fear God. Many people are more concerned about how they will be viewed by their friends and family than they're concerned about their standing before God. This is the error of the Pharisees that we saw in verses 43 and 44 of this morning's passage. They love their position and power more than they love God. Fear God, not men. You could reject this truth about Jesus because you simply do not believe that it is true. But to do that, you must reject the personal witness of John the Baptist, the authoritative and well-documented miracles of Jesus and the written word of God. Do you have enough evidence against these truths? Or are you a doubting Thomas, needing to see some physical proof of Jesus' identity? Be wary of the tender rebuke that Jesus gave Thomas when Thomas believed. Jesus said, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And the third option, one I hope you will pursue if you still don't know, believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God, that he died on your behalf to pay for your sin and walk in the new resurrected life of freedom that you have in him. Submit to your life to him as your Lord and you will receive the peace that comes from the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. You will still face troubles and persecutions, but Jesus will hold you in the palm of his powerful hand and keep you. If the spirit is pulling on your heart this morning, do not fight it. Surrender to him and fall into his arms. Please talk to me after the service or if you're not comfortable speaking to a stranger, find Gunnar or Ohimai. Never ignore the regenerating work of the spirit in your life. If you have already accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and savior, then what does all of this mean to you? Well, as I said at the beginning, we all struggle with doubts and doubts left unresolved can lead to a hardened heart. The writer of Hebrews exhorts all followers of Christ in chapter three, verses 12 and 13. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. How do we not only overcome doubt, how do we prevent it from ever creeping in? Let me offer some practical help. First, as I already mentioned, we should pray as the man did in Mark 9:24. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Jesus knows we need help. As the writer of Hebrews reminds us, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Pray against your doubts. Ask your Lord for a greater faith. Do you want to know how you can hear the answer to that prayer? read it in his written word to you. I know we are given many reasons why we should be reading our Bible every day. We must be cautious not to read our Bible for the same reason that the Pharisees did, thinking that we're earning some points with God because we're reading the Bible. Instead, let me offer you to you that reading God's word is the best way to prevent doubt. His word is true and daily immersing yourself in truth will keep you from doubt. Not only that, but you will encounter the countless promises of God in his word. The Psalms are a great place for that. You will learn that God is all powerful, all knowing, always present, always good and just. When you read of God's character, your doubts will melt away ever so slowly. I don't think they will ever disappear this side of eternity, but their frequency and their persistence will decrease. Finally, and this one may seem a little different, but listen to good, theologically rich songs and hymns. Last Sunday at our church back at home, we sang the song we saw. Saying earlier this morning, in Christ alone. And I want to remind us of the first and fourth verses of that hymn. I won't sing them, I'll read them. But consider how these words, if they are playing in the background of your home, in the background of your car, and in the background of your mind, how these words will keep you from doubt and focus on the identity and the love of Jesus. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace. When fears are stilled, when strivings cease. My comforter, my all in all. Here, in the love of Christ, I stand. No guilt in life, No fear in death, death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell. No scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here, in the power of Christ, I'll stand.
0: You've been listening to Sermons from Iceland, a weekly podcast highlighting the Sunday teaching ministry of Lofstofan Baptiste Kyrka in Reykjavik, Iceland. If you have a desire to see the gospel spread in Iceland, consider partnering with The Iceland Project. For more information, go to theicelandproject.org. If you live in Iceland or plan on visiting Iceland soon, make plans to worship with us at 11 a.m. on Sundays. Our address is Fagrating 2A, Kopavogur, only seven miles or 12 kilometers southeast of downtown Reykjavik. You can reach Pastor Gunnar via the Lofstofan Facebook page or by email. His address is lofstofan at lofstofan.is. Join us next week for another Bible-based and Jesus-centered message on Sermons from Iceland.